I try to lay out the context of this. I mean, this was after the most destructive war that the world had ever known. Millions of people had died. And von Neumann had predicted this and the Holocaust very you know, successfully years in advance. And he now was convinced that within a decade, there would be a third world war with nuclear weapons. Okay, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Anino Bhattacharya, who is a science writer who has worked at The Economist and at uh, Nature. And most recently, he's the author of The Man from the Future, The Visionary Life of John von Neumann. And it was an extremely enjoyable read, super interesting. And so before we jump into the questions, Anino, I'm wondering if you can kind of give context to my audience and summarize the life of this giant. <laughs> uh, well, that's not an easy task, but I'll give it a go. So he was um, born in Budapest uh, in around 1903 to this wealthy Jewish family. And pretty early on, um, they realized that um, there's something quite special about him. So he can do these long six-figure calculations in his head by six. And he's learned calculus by eight. Right, and he's teaching himself the finer points of set theory um, by kind of 11, right? So he's going on long walks with uh, Eugene Wigner, who is a childhood friend of his and a future Nobel Prize winner. And uh, Wigner's a year older than him, and he's, he's teaching Wigner set theory at that age. So it's it's kind of clear that even among geniuses, as he would be later on at... Uh, Los Alamos, for example, or um, at the uh, Princeton and at the Institute for Advanced Study, uh, where he'd be recruited along with Einstein, that he was kind of um, a cut above even all of these uh, incredibly clever people. And uh, and so, yeah, so he grows up in this uh, quite privileged Budapest surroundings. Um, their home was... Um, often visited by um, the the greats of the time. Um, it was an incredibly cultured city. And um, his um, father, Max, was a kind of successful banker. So they were quite wealthy. I mean, he was a self-made man. Um, but um, he had, as a result, von Neumann, who was one of uh, three brothers, actually, he was the eldest, he had the benefits of um, kind of a top flight education as well. Yeah. So, you know, um, right before we did the interview, I was thinking about what, uh, you know, I have a computer science degree and I was thinking about, okay, what portion of my computer science degree can be traced back directly to von Neumann? I was just going through just like an initial glance at a few of the classes that I took where like a large part of the fraction of the content uh, came from von Neumann, right? So you could like, okay, algorithms, linear programming, um, you know, merge sort, like probably like a quarter of my curriculum, um, quantum computing, uh, you know, density and density matrix, uh, von Neumann entropy, hardware, von Neumann, uh, the, uh, you know, the von Neumann architecture for my, uh, the computers. Um, you know, even like my organizational ethics class, you know, that, that, that game theory, um, that comes up, uh, you know, theory of computing, uh, you know, finite state machines, um, cellular automata. So like, it, it, it's astounding to me that this person is responsible for probably like a third of everything I learned in college. 
Um, and so it was, it was, um, very interesting to then get to read the history of this person and the ideas that he came up with and interacted with. Um, now, uh, one very interesting part about the context, um, uh, context surrounding von Neumann's work is, you know, he was part of this group, as you talk about, called the Martians. They were uh, Hungarian and Central European Jews who migrated to the United States in the early 20th century. And, um, as Scott Alexander has a fun blog post title about this. He says uh, the um, the the nuclear uh, the, the nuclear bomb was a high school science project for a bunch of uh, Hungarians uh, because the, a, a lot of the scientists who worked on the nuclear bomb were part, like went to the same high school. So, what was the cultural or other factors that made this group of people so? I mean, produce so many geniuses. Right. So they were. Um all Jewish, um, and von Neumann attributed this kind of pressure to succeed um, to growing up in kind of Central Europe between the two world wars, um, being surrounded by sort of anti-Semitism. Now, Budapest was relatively tolerant, but it was in the air of Central Europe at the time. And he said that um, he felt a pressure to... um, succeed or face extinction i mean they were constantly under this huge relentless uh kind of psychological pressure um to kind of do the impossible and you know von neumann in his letters from 1930 um by which time he's safely in the in the u.s he's predicting disaster he's he predicts pretty accurately that there will be a second world war and he predicts that um european jews um, will face extin- extinction. Um, so he, he is very ac- acutely aware of this. Of course, um, there are circumstances around uh, Budapest at the, at the time which um, was able, which meant that geniuses of um, this sort were uh, nurtured. So there were private schools and they were all inevitably private schools and they were all, almost all boys schools as well. And um, von Neumann went to one of uh, three, I think, elite schools in Budapest at the time. Uh, Teller, for example, and Wigner and um, Szilard um, are all part of this Martians, part of this group called the Martians later. They all went to these um, kind of elite schools. And um, von Neumann was spotted quite early on by his maths teacher who um, told his father, you know, your, your boy's exceptional, let me arrange special tutoring for him. So von Neumann gets picked out even from this group of exceptional people and he's given um, a special course at the University of Budapest. And um, it's, uh, his teachers are all just amazed at his abilities. So the joke was um, later on when all these guys met again at Los Alamos to work on the American bomb project that they had these funny Hungarian accents and they had these almost supernatural um, intellectual abilities. Um, so the joke was they must be from another planet. Now, when Wigner was asked about this, he said, there is no Hungarian phenomenon. The only phenomenon that needs explaining is Johnny von Neumann. So you can you can tell from from those sorts of comments what kind of person he was 
I, I'm actually curious to boil down what act, actually what what exactly was going on that produced so many geniuses. I mean, uh, one one uh, one thing you proposed was maybe it was the private schools, but uh, I mean, as you just said, you know, the, the, he he had like uh, he was he had taught himself integral and differential calculus by the time he was ten and knew like four languages. So uh, may, maybe that aided his growth. But I'm curious. I mean, it, it seems like he was already on the path to becoming like a world star scientist. Yeah, I mean, he was renowned as a mathematician really early on. I mean, he he as soon as he finished his PhD, where he resolves this incredibly difficult um, paradox in in set theory, or helps to resolve it by um, sort of twenty two, and then he goes to uh, Göttingen where quantum theory is being invented by another whiz kid, actually, Werner Heisenberg, of course, who's just a year older than von Neumann. And uh, von Neumann gets really interested in quantum mechanics. And he um, produces this first mathematically rigorous version of it um, in a, a few years later. So, I mean, von Neumann clearly, I mean, he was just an exceptional, he had an exceptional brain. Now, his um, grandfather was apparently, although he wasn't academically um, particularly successful, he had started his own very successful business. But what was interesting was that he had these calculational abilities that were actually better than von Neumann's. So von Neumann remembers asking his granddad these incredibly long sums, and his granddad would come back with um, with answers pretty quickly. And von Neumann, despite all of his genius, he was never able to add, um, you know, kind of match these, um, these abilities himself. And of course, there's a lot more to higher mathematics, as we know, than uh, being able to do really long sums. But it's kind of interesting that uh, there's some, you know, genetic um, predisposition there that we can, uh, we can see. Um, one interesting possibility that I've heard is you have Jewish em emancipation in Europe in like, um, was it the 18th or uh, 19th century? And then afterwards, you have this a tremendous streak of Jewish achievement that's halted by the Holocaust. So, you know, you, you have this brief window where this group of extraordinary people are able to achieve great things before, you know, before they're forced to emigrate or, you know, other things happen. Um, and it, I mean, it makes what happened in Europe during that time even more tragic when you consider what, what was stopped. So, you know, what, what, one question I have um, is you, you have this uh, person who is incredibly prolific. Would he have been able to achieve as much as he did if he were born, say, uh, today, given that a lot of the low hanging fruit has been picked? Um, is it just that he got into science and mathematics at a time that there was just so many different ideas combining and left to explore? Or, I mean, do, do you think that any at any other time a person like uh, von Neumann would have been able to be as prolific? Um, no, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. I think there was definitely a historical moment. I mean, in terms of people with brains like von Neumann, they're pretty hard to think of. But, you know, in terms of raw mathematical ability, you, you look at somebody like Terence Tao uh, today or, um, you know, you, you consider um, uh, th there's there's a few other pure mathematicians who could maybe um, match uh, von Neumann's sort of brain. I mean, it, it was extraordinarily unusual, but maybe not, you know, once in a century unusual but um extremely unusual but i think 
um, there are a few things that um, kind of mark him out. One is, yeah, the historical moment. So he arrives on the scene in um, kind of, you know, 1910, 1920s, and he's, he's immersed in um, kind of a maths that's going through this logical crisis, and it's going to spur people like Alan Turing and Kurt Gödel to think really hard about these step-by-step proofs um how do we how do we prove stuff properly without uh, getting into these awful paradoxes and that would lead later on that step-by-step thinking would be extremely influential when people came to think about programming and you know and algorithms and things like that so there's um so there's that side of things and then of course science just explodes you know you've got um masses of funding of course quantum mechanics becomes the atom bomb basically within a space of 25 years you have huge amounts of money suddenly being thrown at um at science and and then you get big science and you know economics you know thanks to von neumann um in, in large part becomes suddenly more mathematical but now um with that massive funding and the continued uh funding of science i think there's been um, a great degree of, of specialism. Um, I think the time when one genius of von Neumann's stature could contribute so productively to kind of, you know, everything from pure mathematics right the way through quantum mechanics to various fields of physics to, you know, nonlinear equations and uh, to uh, distill out the modern form of, of the computer, the programmable computer to automata theory, um, you know, come up with a proof that um, machines could reproduce themselves. I think, uh, sadly, that that was really a, a, a brief moment of the 20th century that made it possible. But the second um, thing that, that's incredibly rare about von Neumann that I noticed, he actually embraced this idea of applying maths to real-world problems. Whereas many mathematicians, many academics of all sorts, actually, would uh, rather eschew, uh, you know, the, the real world. They don't want very much to do with it. They, <laughs> um, when it comes to mathematicians, they'd rather be left alone in their ivory tower to prove theorems. And von Neumann did a lot of that. He, he left behind a, you know, a massive um, amount of pure mathematics. But really, my, my book focuses on... Um, the stuff that he left behind that came about from engaging with with the real world and there's a huge amount of that and um, I think that's that's also what made him really quite exceptional the only other person that I can think of that was that is now as gifted uh, mathematically as he was and has shown um, some interest in these sort of practical affairs is Stephen Wolfram Um, so um, uh, but, you know, Wolfram was born in the wrong time, I think. Um, perhaps if he'd have been born in 1903, uh, you know, he might have been a, a von Neumann-esque figure. But um, so there's definitely a combination there of good luck, um, a historical moment and just, you know, a particular attitude, maybe because he was brought up in a, you know, by a banker father who was not afraid to get his hands dirty i mean this was an he was an investment banker happily investing in um 
firms in technology in the technology firms of the time people like uh, you know he invested in a jacquard loom company um which used used punch cards to program looms you know that that made a an impact on von neumann obviously at the, at the time so i think yeah there's a a um a combination of reasons that uh, von neumann was so influential Wolfram could have been a great scientist in another time. I guess he just ended up writing uh, writing some mathematical software in our time. Um, not, not to say he hasn't tried other things. Um, so you, you suggest that maybe it was his uh, it was a time he spent working on practical problems that helped him achieve so much. And I wonder if the opposite may not be true. That is it possible that because he got recruited into all these different projects that the government had going on at the time, especially because of World War II, you know, ballistics research, nuclear implosion devices, and then advising with like uh, Cold War strategy. Um, was this in some sense a distraction from the, uh, you know, the basic research that he might have otherwise done and been more productive at? Well, I mean, uh, you know, Bronowski thought, you know, that von Neumann had kind of wasted this, the, his incredible talent. But to me, the more I looked at his work, the more I realised that for him, um, this engagement with the real world was actually vitally important. And, um, you know, it need not have been the work for the military, but that is where, at the time, in the, in the unfortunately, in the early to mid-20th century, a lot of the challenging problems were. I mean, designing the, the, the atom bomb, which is where he made some key contributions. And then later on, of course, the emergence of the computer is deeply, deeply linked to the mathematics of the atom, atom bomb. And um, arguably, it, you know, it was, it was his engagement with these areas that led him to, to think and be in a position to kind of spur computing and as I argue he was kind of a godfather of the open source movement um, you know his uh, proof um, of um, that automata could could reproduce themselves and evolve all of this thinking um, came about because he was I think deeply engaged with the real world and that that makes him unusual and he argues as much um, quite openly in an essay that he did called the mathematician and um, where he says that if mathematicians retreat too far kind of into their ivory towers, if, if the maths becomes just maths for the sake of maths with no um, input from um, kind of the real world, then um, the, he, he said it, it became Baroque um, uh, and, and uh, not interesting. So I find it really difficult to believe that if von Neumann had sheltered himself away and somehow been left alone or didn't engage with the sorts of problems that he did, whether it was the computer or to his military work, that he would have left behind the kind of interesting oeuvre that, that he did. Uh, he, he wouldn't have been von Neumann, right? I mean, you, you can see it's so deeply ingrained in his personality to be, um, to be out there thinking all the time and to be thinking about um you know key problems that um that it's difficult to imagine a von neumann that that wasn't like that that was tucked away uh, and i think that that as a kind of intellectual biographer that that makes him kind of 
incredibly interesting, but also incredibly challenging um, to tackle. Yeah, that's what makes your book so interesting, um, is, is that you are a biographer idea. So, you know, I mean, a lot of other biographies about scientists really frustrate me because you get to hear all these details about their life, um, you know, which, which, which is also interesting, but you never get to engage with their ideas, which is probably a big part of what reading about a scientist should be about. So, and you do that really well. So, you know, that, that, that was super fun. Uh, did John von Neumann have a miracle year? You know what? Um, I don't know. And uh, maybe you've looked at his publication record more closely than I have and, and counted up the papers. But, you know, whilst um, Einstein, for example, and Kurt Gödel, when they were placed into this perfect environment that was the Institute for Advanced Study, right, they didn't have you know, to teach anybody anything. They had massive holidays. They could do what they wanted. Well, Einstein's time there was, you know, really not very productive. He he had, you know, his miracle year, right, in the kind of early 20th century, which was incredible. But then his time at, at um, the IAS was not particularly productive. He was trying to find his theory of everything. And Gödel, after this incredible work in Europe on, you know, his incompleteness theorems, again, he, he spent a lot of time at the IAS going for nice walks with Einstein and, uh, you know, and, and talking, chatting to von Neumann. Um, but of course, you know, there, there wasn't much coming out there in comparison. Now, when you, when you, you look at von Neumann's productivity, at the IAS, I mean, he was inventing whole new fields of mathematics. He was um, bringing about the birth of the modern computer. You know, he had this project at the IAS um, to to uh, bring a, a computer uh, to them against, you know, it has to be said, against the uh, wishes of many of the IAS staff. But... Um, you know, he was he was he'd written three volumes worth of operator operator theory, and he always joked, right, that um, um, you know a a mathematician's productive years are over, um, a, you know at thirty or at uh, twenty eight, and it was always ten years away from however old he was at the time, so. Um, you know, he he clearly felt that he had a lot more to do, and I think that's what made his kind of un untimely death all the more tragic uh, for everybody. But you know, it, it was uh, inc in incredibly painful for him. Uh, you know, nobody enjoys staring death in the face, but for for von Neumann, it, it was um, it was extraordinarily um, painful. Yeah. And I think you mentioned the theory that it might have had to do with his spending time around nuclear tests, the, the bone cancer he got, which is, you know, ironic, but still tragic. Um, so we know him very well for his work on computers. I'm curious why his uh, research on cellular automata and constructors hasn't uh, taken off and why that isn't considered... Well, by that hasn't been researched as, I guess, as fundamental as computers are. You know, like David Deutsch has recently published about uh, constructor theory. His, his claim is that a universal constructor is like as fundamental a tool as a universal computer is, something that can construct anything else. Why did this uh, train of thought kind of languish? Well, I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because, I mean, the, the book's called The Man from the Future, right? And I, I loved um, von Neumann's uh, proof 
of um, his automata theory, you know, his proof um, uh, that automata could could reproduce. And, uh, you know, he combines Turing's universal uh, computer with... um, uh, with with this idea of a of a construction unit, and so he produces the universal constructor, right? And um, I think, in a sense, this is an idea that's still kind of ahead of its time. And just after I published um, the Man from the Future in the UK, this group in the States this uh, published um, their paper on xenobots, and these are kind of stem cells, and they they sort of whirl around and collect other stem cells together in little groups. And then these stem cells themselves start to whirl around and and collect more together. So I suddenly realised, wow, you know, this is a the embodiment of von Neumann's self-reproducing automata. And it's only taken, what, uh, you know, 70 years for them to make an appearance. And these stem cells were designed by... Um, kind of a uh, a neural net so artificial intelligence and here we are you know all of von Neumann's little influences coming together in this neat neat package I think maybe in another 10 years time we'll be asking the same question again why didn't anybody realize this stuff was important I mean when um, von Neumann's first biographer Norman McRae wrote about or Thomas' theory, who is extremely dismissive, barely, you know, gave it a few pages as if it's like something quirky. Um, and and now we're beginning to see kind of it's the influence of this extraordinarily powerful idea, if nothing else. We know that it inspired um, those early pioneers in nanotechnology to think about universal constructors at the molecular level. We know that um, RepRap, this idea of a... 3D printer where you could print most of its parts. You know, I, I, I talked to um, the inventor of that and he said he was inspired by this uh, this idea, von Neumann's idea. And, um, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you had people thinking about, well, how do we explore the universe? Well, why don't we make a probe that can make more copies of itself, you know, out in space by foraging on the planets it finds it's this incredibly fertile idea and i think we're still just at the at the beginning of really working out where this goes and uh, it's kind of dangerous and it's kind of exciting and who knows where it's gonna gonna end i think um for me at least his his work here and the suggestion the implications of it are even more scary than like the counterintuitive implications from his game theory work because um like I, robin hansen has this paper i forget the title but the idea is um whatever force or like civilization or whatever is expanding fastest will be the one that controls most of uh, the universe at least in, unless impeded by another one and so if it's the case that this sort of von neumann probes almost spread like a virus around the universe uh, and turning everything into goop maybe like the expected outcome of colonization is just that that's what the universe ends up looking like where the low hanging fruit so to speak has uh, been burned away by uh, burned away by uh, such probes and uh, it, it's an interesting like futuristic hypothesis and one i don't really hear much talked about which i think is interesting <laughs> well you know <laughs> that's one way it could go let's hope it doesn't go that way um you know, um, uh, may, maybe they'll, you know, 
build us a, a new home after we've trashed this one. Who knows? Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think, of course, you know, these sorts of science fiction elements may be, may be uh, part of it is that uh, no you know nobody wants to talk about automata theory because it's got these unsavory science fiction elements attached to it um you know people would rather uh, stick to um the von neumann architecture and all that all, all that sort of stuff um but yeah i i mean um it's the fecundity really of the idea more than the mathematics isn't it it just you know that somebody can take this question that philosophers have been kicking around for sort of centuries, you know, can machines make more machines? Can machines have babies? Can machines reproduce? And he just says, yeah, well, let's let's look at this mathematically, shall we? And then he solves it. And, you know, we have the answer. And that's what I find gripping about von Neumann's work. And it's it's kind of what I found overall as I was approaching this book that I wanted to show that people... When you look at kind of popular science books or popular mathematics books, the majority of them are really about kind of celebrating the maths or the science in and of itself, right? They rarely actually talk about maths as this kind of existential thing that humans have invented that underpins our technological world. We don't really think of it like that often. And with von Neumann, as I was writing about von Neumann, it became impossible not to. Right. So take game theory. Um, what was he trying to do there? Well, this was rooted again in this very early 20th century idea amongst mathematicians that maths was extraordinarily successful. So we can apply it to kind of anything. And, you know, why should we leave um, the human mind and human behavior to psychologists when they've been so terribly unsuccessful in actually getting anywhere with understanding it let's uh, let let's try to do the maths on this and so kind of that i think it's that impetus that really drove a lot of mathematicians including von neumann to tackle um the theory of games which is really about conflict and cooperation and i think that was kind of his motivation there and um and again you've got you know the 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 very thing that kind of some pure mathematicians would say, oh, yeah, you know, von Neumann was wasting his time by being so involved with military work or, or you know, this practical stuff. He was whizzing about looking for computational power. Well, you know, without that part of his personality, would he have been so interested in, in game theory? Would he have done, would he have achieved what he did, um, you know, in, in those terms? which is recasting economics in a, you know, in a completely different light, really. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like he foresaw the replication uh, crisis in psychology or something. Um, you know, sp speaking of his work on game theory, I think that part was especially, um, especially relevant today. Um, I'm curious how, you, you know, his, you know, min-max theorem and the theory of like zero-sum games, that makes it really hard, easy to model um, model two-player games, uh, two-player zero-sum games, uh, like the one we had against the Soviet Union. I'm curious how he would have thought about a multipolar world where more than two parties have nuclear weapons and are possibly roughly equal in power. Um, uh, how would game theory generalize to that kind of problem? Yeah, I mean, so 
it's not at all clear, right, that von Neumann thought about nuclear strategy in kind of mini-max terms as a zero-sum game. In fact, there's quite a lot of evidence that he didn't. I mean, his... Um, he, for example, he took very little interest in the prisoner's dilemma. That wasn't cooked up by him. It was cooked up by people at Rand who were kind of ins- inspired and influenced by him. And, of course, prisoner's dilemma isn't a zero-sum game. It's a, it's a non-zero-sum game. But it became this um, template with which many people thought about um, nuclear strategy in the Cold War. Now... Um, if you look at what von Neumann wrote uh, in Theory of Games and Economic Behaviour with Morgenstern, what he was concerned with, his kind of solutions were based around cooperation. So he was like, were there stable solutions to games um, if a number of the players cooperated? And you know, was this an optimal solution to the game? Um, so you could um, you could imagine, right, say if you play, I don't know, Monopoly, and there's three of you, um, often what you'll notice is one player will start winning and then the, the two other players, even without talking to each other, they'll sort of gang up on them, right? They'll form a kind of alliance. And, you know, kind of von Neumann's the- early... Um, um, look at game theory was based around increasing numbers of these kind of um, alliances so if you wanted to know about a 10 player game von Neumann tried to kind of think about how you know within this 10 player group you could get different alliances that were kind of stable and would lead to a winning solution wasn't entirely successful and it took um, John Forbes Nash later on to kind of um, develop this idea of non-cooperative game theory, which was um, hugely successful. Um, uh, but um, that kind of doesn't chime well, really, with this idea of von Neumann viewing the world in these zero-sum terms, right? He came from this rather central European background where they were used to discussing ideas and kind of bars and cafes over a drink and talking about um, stuff quite freely and sharing and um, giving credit um, to others when when it's due and so I mean he, he was obviously proud of his own contributions and he was quite defensive about them but he was also reasonably honest if he had culled an idea from somebody else he would totally be um be honest about that and give them credit and so this kind of thread of thinking I think uh, was um, was quite important and it's been weirdly overlooked when it came to kind of this caricature of von Neumann that developed as a result of Kubrick using him as one inspiration for Dr. Strangelove later on. Um, now von Neumann's actual thoughts on nuclear strategy he penned a paper in the 50s before he died um and um in that um he makes it clear that he doesn't he's not really talking about this preempt the idea of a preemptive strike on the soviet union anymore it's a lot more complicated it's more like what evolved at ran later so 
you know, he was deeply uncomfortable with this idea that, you know, we had two or more sides with enough nuclear weapons to wipe out the world many times over. So he thought that if nuclear weapons ever were used, um, you know, you'd have to be insane to just go all out. So, you know, he, he talked about kind of holding holding back. And, you know, you toss a, if one person tosses a nuclear weapon over and blows blows up a city, then the other person does. And it proceeds a little bit more um, slowly. It doesn't escalate all at once into this massive catastrophic um, nuclear war. But um, the thing that people picked up uh, most about his thinking was, of course, in this brief period after the Second World War, where he famously said, if you say bomb them tomorrow, I say, why not today? If you say four o'clock, why not two o'clock? And, you know, it's not entirely clear that he meant that in all seriousness. I mean, his daughter certainly thinks he was advocating for a preemptive strike, or at least he was asking people to think quite rationally about whether a preemptive strike on the Soviet Union might be worthwhile, given that he felt that it was almost inevitable Stalin as soon as he developed nuclear weapons, would launch a, a kind of um, strike on, on the United States. Um, he, was, he was sort of arguing, well, you know, if we're in this situation where we're thinking about it, why sh shouldn't we do it sooner um, rather than later? And shouldn't we do it before the Soviet Union has enough weapons that, um, you know, they can uh, fight back? And shouldn't we do something to ensure that nuclear power doesn't get into the wrong hands and you know whether that's a world government or whether the United States functions as a de facto guardian of nuclear technology you know it wasn't it wasn't clear um, I think the other thing that I sort of say in my book is I try to lay out the context of this I mean this was after the most destructive war that the world had ever known millions of people had died and von Neumann had predicted this and the Holocaust very, you know, successfully years in advance. And he now was convinced that within a decade, there would be a third world war with nuclear weapons. Now, if you imagine that, and if you think that, and if your past predictions have come true, then it allows you incredible scope to think in this kind of rather kind of ruthless manner about, well, maybe we may be bombing, you know, the Soviet Union and wiping out, you know, 100,000 um, people's lives at the push of a button. Maybe maybe that's not not as bad as it um, as it could be when you consider that millions of people are going to be dead in a decade and, you know, p potentially bringing all of human civilization to an abrupt um, end. Um, well, maybe we can we can stop that from happening. And um, it's uh, it turns out that it's a surprisingly common idea at the time in America um, and elsewhere. I mean, Bertrand Russell, for example, the famous pacifist, um, also argued for a preemptive strike on the Soviet Union if they didn't give up their you know their nuclear ambitions. And you you know you dig around in the post kind of in the late forties. In this brief window after the Second World War, when the U.S. seemed to have a virtual monopoly on on nuclear weapons, and you find suddenly that you know, a lot more people um, supported this idea, including a you know a large proportion, by the way, of the um, American public, um, then then you think is is possible.
Um, you, you know, it, it, as you talk about in the book, there's like a, a very interesting but extremely scary precarious scenario where two sides think um, two sides have a nuclear weapon or think that both sides have a nuclear weapon, but neither one has developed the ability yet to defend their nuclear silos um, against uh, initial attack. So then, you know, both of them think that the other one, if they launch a first strike, there would be no deterrence. So then both of them are incentivized to launch that first strike, which is kind of like the opposite of mad. And, you know, the, the, that's that's one worry if like, I don't know, if if um, if nuclear technology gets better, in some ways that could have make a nuclear war much more likely because the, people could start thinking, OK, well, we can just take out all their all, all, all their entire arsenal. But, but so they have no way to retaliate. Um, um, I, I'm curious what you, you mentioned, you know, he had a good way of thinking about escalation. I'm curious how he would have thought about. Um, you know, one problem we have today is like that you can have cyber warfare, which is immensely destructive in an economic sense, but doesn't warrant or seem to warrant a sort of land war. And then you can have a land war like, I don't know, China takes over Taiwan or, you know, you have uh, what's going on in Ukraine. And but it seems like way too harsh to react with nuclear war. And I'm curious how von Neumann would have been able to think about these kinds of problems. You know, um, von Neumann. I mean, he was recruited by Rand, but the work that he did, and, and Rand became this kind of hothouse for nuclear strategic thinking, right, in, in the Cold War, and it um, influenced um, American policy. But von Neumann, apart from this paper on, on uh, nuclear strategy, he seems to have taken remarkable little interest in, in the whole thing. I mean, when he was at Rand, he was um, uh, computing various solutions um to kind of duels so you know he'd worked out the minimax theorem and um so he was busy well you know if you have a, a plane and a um i don't know a tank or you know whatever a submarine and a ship you know and they they can see each other coming at what point should they fire at what you know at what point should they do this and so he got kind of involved in that and computing and he kind of lost interest in game theory again as soon as as soon as computing came to the fore. So he helped. So whilst he was doing this, he ended up helping Rand kind of realize their own ambitions of of having a computer. Um, so it's it's uh, not at all clear to me how much he'd still carry on being involved in the strategy. Uh, you know, in 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 the. Um, nuclear strategy side but of course I mean this idea of kind of if you are coming up with your best strategy then you have to think what um, you know your opponent will make of that and you have to imagine that they're also you know an intelligent opponent um, who's going to be out for themselves and that thinking is very deeply embedded into Minimax and um and uh, you know, and that that was that was clearly very influential um, later on. One thing I find very interesting about von Neumann's work for the government um, and in aiding these kinds of strategic conversations is, um, uh, at least from my understanding, it seems that a lot of the scientists during that time were um, somewhat radical and sympathetic to socialism. You know, like Bertrand Russell or Oppenheimer. Um, and von Neumann seems to be a very practical, non-radical uh, person. I mean, you can think that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it seems like he broke from the conventional uh, 
I guess, elite scientific culture at the time. I'm curious, what about his personality or background do you think made him that way? Or am I even characterizing the situation in the correct way? Yeah, um, no, I, I think that's fair. In fact, if anything, he was considered um, kind of right wing or at least a, a Cold War hawk um, in certain circles. Um, I think if you look at him quite closely, I mean, you could argue in many ways he was, you know, something of a, a, a liberal. But, you know, um, at the time, some, you know, a lot of people felt that he was quite hawkish. Um, now, the reason for that is that um, there was a, uh, shortly after the First World War in Hungary, there were two things that happened. One was there was a very short-lived communist uprising and that government lasted for six months and it was pretty brutal um you know they they reclaimed private property from wealthy fam wealthy families and and there was just general chaos and um beatings on the street and stuff and um but then something happened afterwards and a, a military essentially a you know a, a military government uh, just marched in, uh, led by General Horthy, and they took control. And that turned out to be even worse. I mean, they, they there was public hangings and and rapes, and um, you know, thousands of people ended up dead. And um, many Jewish people um, at that time were seen to have been collaborating with the earlier communist um, government. So you know, many Jews were basically shot on the streets as well. Now, the von Neumanns were, uh, you know, uh, by dint of their wealth, um, they were kind of protected from this, but von Neumann saw all of this as he was growing up. And then, of course, later with the rise of the Nazis in Germany, he, um, you know, he had left Germany by then, but a lot of his formative years as a, as a, scientist or as a mathematician were, were spent in Germany and he adored um, kind of interwar Germany in the at least in the uh, late 20s and it, for him it was this perfect intellectual climate I mean you have to remember that Germany was you know scientifically and mathematically definitely kind of the center of the world then I mean America just was nothing at the time um, it was only you know uh, kind of during the Second World War and post the Second World War that um, from the 30s, um, late 30s onwards, that America became this scientific and technological kind of powerhouse, really. And, uh, you know, it benefited from many of these European scientists who, who left as a result of the Nazis. Now, he'd seen this and he his lesson was that authoritarianism, you know, is something that we shouldn't tolerate. And so when he came to the States, his priority was to put his expertise into the hands of the democratic government there. And whilst he definitely was um, advising them, he, um, you know, I, I, I got the feeling that, you know, he, he, he wasn't interested in making decisions on their behalf because you know, he, he, this was a democratically elected government. I think deep down he was a Democrat. He felt he should work as hard as possible to give uh, the US government the tools that it needed to overcome the Nazis and to, you know, and to, um, 
you know, main, maintain uh, their lead as kind of the preeminent um, democracy in the world. But um, so he was kind of, um, kind of, I think, more more allergic to authoritarianism, whereas I think, um, you know, uh, before the Second World War happened and before we knew what was happening under Stalin, there were many intellectuals who were willing to give, you know, the communism, uh, you know, deep left um, thinking more, more of a chance. Whereas von Neumann had kind of seen what that turned into um, in Hungary. And he'd seen that essentially it became a kind of authoritarian regime um, he was deeply suspicious of Stalin um, from day one for the very same reason. And he'd had these experiences of, you know, U Europe being turned upside down by the Nazis. And I think that really shaped him very profoundly. Um, he became quite cynical about human nature as well at the same time. I think, you know, he, deep down he was, you know, superficially he was... Um, kind of a good man and um uh, he you know he he was nice to people and i think that's really where he started you know in his day-to-day -day interactions with people he was he was nice he would do these incredible things very quietly behind people's backs that many other scientists wouldn't dream of like you know this builder hungarian builder contacted him in the middle of the second world war and said i want to learn more about maths but i'm in america basically building stuff where do i find out more about maths so he writes to his friend in wartime hungary and gets them to send over a bunch of hungarian maths textbooks i mean and and later on you've got people like uh, uh mandelbro who came over thanks to his reference and you know he was at Princeton and the IAS and years later when Mandelbro ran into problems with his boss um, he goes looking for work elsewhere and he finds that like whatever a decade earlier long after you know and this is long after von Neumann was dead you know von Neumann had sent out letters and talk to people so you know Mandelbro is doing really important work but you know he may struggle because what he's doing is so cutting edge so if he does and he go comes looking for a job please you know give him a job because this guy's brilliant and you know he does these little things and he, he of course helps um, scientists leave um, kind of Europe before the Nazis make that impossible he gets he helps to get Gödel out um, of Germany, for example. So, you know, he's this very conflicted personality. Um, so I think, I think you know, he's, as you would expect, quite a complex um, and thoughtful human being. And he's not easily characterised as, you know, Dr. Strangelove or, uh, you know, a, um, a bleeding heart liberal. Uh, I, I understand what you meant, but out of context, um, he was superficially a good man. Has got to be the, the best backhanded compliment ever. Um, <laughs> uh, so the final question, out of yourself for your time, you know, you, you're a researcher yourself. You know, you have a PhD in protein crystallography. You were a medical researcher. And now you've analyzed uh, John von Neumann's life, you know, probably one of the greatest, probably the greatest um, uh, a genius of all time. What are, do you, have you like extrapolated some lessons about how to be prolific or how to come up with new insights in different fields? 
not at all. But I, I, I would thoroughly recommend if you're going to write a book that you try not to give up your day job a year before the worst pandemic <laughs> descends that we've known about for you know decades descends on on and engulfs the planet. Um, thus ensuring that instead of working on your book about the the cleverest uh, person of the 20th century uh, who works on abstruse set theory, uh, you end up having to homeschool a recalcitrant 10-year-old. <laughs> um, so that's that's one, you know, if you want to be productive, don't do that. Okay. Um, but in other terms, I think, you know, it's it's dangerous trying to you know, come out with a kind of self-help book based on von Neumann's lifestyle, right? I mean, his first wife left him because he was too busy thinking. And, um, you know, she took up with essentially <laughs> a graduate student, uh, Horner Cooper, who was, um, you know, a physics graduate student. And, you know, and she was you know, quite um, the thinker herself. She ended up becoming this mover and shaker in... Um, science admin and uh you know his second wife was uh very clever herself um clara dan but you know i he thought incessantly um uh, from morning to night and you know even at the cocktail parties that he threw um he would sometimes just find noise conducive to work and he would just rush off cocktail in hand to write down some some theorem i mean what what do you draw? What do, what kind of lessons do you draw from that? You know, the only lesson I draw is that um, is that just don't do that. <laughs> you know, try and try and forge some sort of um, work schedule that that kind of works for you. We can't all be superhuman, and uh, you know his, you know, as we see his relationships, his human relationships suffered, and he was, you know, deeply troubled as he as he went out at the close of his life as as you know cancer was eroding his mental capabilities i mean he he kind of rediscovered catholicism he'd converted when he was younger but he had this he was overtaken by this fear of mortality and i think you know when we think about a productive life i think you know we probably all want to go out on on something of a high and not go out in abject terror so yeah you know, read about this incredible human being, but don't try to draw too many life lessons from it, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that, that, that's definitely very fair. Uh, you're an Ajahn Moynemin, almost certainly. Uh, so, um, Ananio, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks very much. It was a, it was a pleasure. Mm-hmm.